0: These are the Money Minutes. Today, why the financial advice model in Australia is broken, and why so many choose to do it themselves. Plus, Australia keeps its AAA credit rating, but only just. It's great to have your company on another episode of the Money Minutes, and look, today I want to take you through a bit of a history, and also the future, of financial advice in this country. Now just think about this, imagine discovering a person who promises to make you wealthy. In my mind this person would be as rare as a leprechaun, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, or maybe somebody who promises they've got next week's lotto numbers. Almost impossible. Generally when someone comes promising you a but wealth creation scheme, or something that promises even above average returns, I normally run the hell the other way. History's taught me that more slickly marketed, put-together sales pitches, the more risk you carry. And it's often disguised by all that marketing hype. And, inevitably, there are massive fees that go with those sorts of deals. So when it comes to financial advice, I must admit to being highly suspicious, cynical even. I've known some of the very best and most high-profile financial advisors in this country. Some of these, through experience, I respect. Many others, I discovered, have been no more than glorified product salesmen and women. Look, it makes sense. You go into business, any business, to pay a mortgage, send your kids to school, to improve your standard of living. And as has been pointed out to me so many times, if financial advisors were so good, why are they selling advice when they could be reaping the rewards of their own advice themselves? But let's start. A long time ago, all investment companies generally had their own salespeople. This included life insurance agents. So I'm going way back into the 60s and 70s. They were so-called, even then, financial advisors. Now, I remember when one company, I remember it was Australian Fixed Trust. It went bust in the 1980s. And I spoke with one of the victims. She told me she she was sold the investment by a really nice young fellow who she trusted implicitly. He came around to her house, bought her flowers. In those days, the commissions paid to those salespeople were eye-watering. He made, and I remember this, it was around 8% of her investment. So of $100,000, he made 8 grand, big money, up front. The business, well, it ultimately collapsed. I think it was the ANZ that bailed out the investors in that case. So I said, well, look to that lady, if that salesperson came around to you today and you had that money to invest again, would you do it? Oh, yes, she said. He was such a nice young fellow. I think he would have tried to have done the right thing, which, of course, was completely wrong. He just would have sold her another investment to make the money all over again. Because as I've discovered in my life, people want someone to trust, even if they turn out to be thoroughly untrustworthy. The term I must admit I've always hated, especially when it comes to you know, descriptions of people about investment, is the word guru. The one thing I despise is being called an investment guru. I just hate it. Because decades of experience have taught me there are no gurus. Some might manage money, generally by a process or better research or insight, better than other people. But there was no one with a magic wand or a great master plan that can guarantee to make you money. It just doesn't work that way. Back in the day when salespeople, often dressed up as financial advisors or life insurance agents, a nice suit and tie, you know what I mean? They sold people high commission and inevitably questionable investments. It was about feeding the machine of the investment managers, the banks, the life insurance companies themselves. The idea of having investments that would benefit a person improving their wealth was secondary to trying to feed the machine of that big institution. Eventually, after umpteen disasters, it cost innocent investors way too much money. Things started to change. The final straw, as I remember, was Storm Financial, back about 10 years ago. The premise of that scheme, dreamt up by a bloke called Emmanuel Casimatis, was to borrow money against your own home, then to use that money as a deposit or down payment to borrow even more money to invest in the stock market. Double gearing, if you like. So it only took a mild downturn in the stock market to wipe out thousands of investors. Some of them lost their homes in the process. Oh, by the way, the commission payments to the salespeople in that scheme, they were monstrous. After that, the whole model of financial advice started to be overturned. There came the future of financial advice, that got rid of commissions, then eventually conflicted advice. In the good old days, advisors who sold one of the company's products, if they sold enough of it... They were fated with trips to, say, the Rugby World Cup, the Olympics to gondolas in Venice. The excess, I've got to tell you, was obscene. When the margins in financial products became so high, banks, well, they wanted to get in on the game. Their theory was that if you bought a home loan or a term deposit from them, they want to buy a stock market-based investment scheme where the profit of the bank might have been ten times more than that of a term deposit. The banks rewarded their tellers and frontline staff for selling those schemes or people who were referred to bank financial planners who inevitably sold them many of the bank's own products. So they weren't really independent, they were actually just salespeople. But that also led to the behaviour that triggered the Banking Royal Commission. Customers paid for advice for years on end but received actually none. Neglected customers who died but whose estates continued to be charged for years on end. The Royal Commission and its aftermath has seen banks jettison their wealth management businesses and financial planning divisions for peppercorn amounts, so desperate have they been to get out of that business. Those same big banks have each had to pay up billions of dollars in reparations to customers for bodgy advice, or in the worst case examples, of giving no advice at all. The continuous changes to financial advice means thankfully that advisors don't get paid commissions and conflicted remuneration or incentives are now long gone. There are higher standards for those who wish to give advice. The result has been that the price of getting this impartial, authoritative advice has gone through the roof. So much so that advice is now almost out of reach for most middle-income families and those just starting out. And it can be argued that they're the ones in most desperate need of advice to create the structures that will see them through their working lives. And even if you can afford the thousands of dollars in fees to gain the services of an impartial, properly licensed financial advisor, I will go back to my original point. There are no gurus. Even that properly educated, independent person can make a mistake. Because as I've often told colleagues and friends, I'd really prefer to find an honest financial advisor rather than a good one. Honesty here is paramount. And there's something else. A really good financial planner will set up all of your structures, debt, estate planning, superannuation, cash flows. The investment side of the equation is often right at the very end, when there are a few dollars spare to be put aside. In my opinion, the very best financial advisors are educators. They provide the options and information to allow an individual or family to make their own decisions, and importantly, to own those decisions, good, bad or indifferent, and that I think is the key. The real problem, as I see it, is younger families, who right now are in an advice vacuum, or trying to do it themselves. The authorities aren't helping terribly much. The future, I believe, is for robo-advice, something that is relatively cheap, is not conflicted, is not trying to push you into one product or another, but allows you to help make your own decision until you reach the size and the scale where you can afford the financial advice. Because as PDD and the Notorious Big understood so many years ago, the more money, the more problems. So let's bring into this conversation a good friend of this podcast and of mine for many, many years, and that is the man who I sometimes call one of Australia's leading independent actuaries, Michael Rice from Rice Warner. Michael, many thanks for your time. Good day, Rice. How are you? Good, thank you. So I, I know the Financial Services Council, as I've explained, has commissioned you to create this report to look at the future of financial advice. Um, But just in regards to looking at even some of the history of financial advice, there was a period where people sought it, people recognised they needed it. But today, I even raise questions as to because people believe advice is conflicted after the Royal Commission, because they're worried about the cost of that advice, that many people ultimately are trying to do it themselves.
1: Yeah, a lot of self-directed people, although, you know, there's another adage that says those that choose lose, you know, if you get into areas where you don't really understand what you're doing, um, and you've only got to look at the number of Robin Hood investors on the market at the moment. But going back a bit, uh, you and I have been around when all of this industry changed from product flogging to um, delivery of uh, strategic advice that would help people plan for the future. And um, it's fair to say that a lot of financial institutions and advisors themselves have struggled with that change. It's taken place over 30 years now. I mean, the, the forerunner of the ACCC, the TPC, did a report on uh, life insurance back in 1992, and uh, said that uh, you know people were conflicted, information was asymmetrical, the remuneration was skewed, and the products weren't good value. And so the Royal Commission two years ago was very disappointing when a lot of those sentiments were repeated, weren't they?
0: Uh, There's no doubt. And and, and if we go back into history and go and work out almost the evolution of financial advice in Australia, there was a period of time when financial advice was largely provided by individuals, maybe by an employer, uh, but mostly by family it then evolved that financial institutions decided to start giving financial advice. But it really wasn't financial advice as such. What it was, it was information about their own products. In other words, this was part of what they called distribution. So the financial advisor effectively um, you know, put themselves out there in many cases to be independent, often were conflicted because they were receiving commissions or other incentives to sell a particular product, Um, And and so really, ultimately, uh, financial advisors became... Distributors, in most cases, for the big financial services companies, the AMPs, the national mutuals, the Axes, colonial mutuals, but then even to the banks as well. So, so this is the evolution. And then, of course, comes the industry funds. And so the industry funds then try to dress up that they've got a form of advice. But, of course, that advice would always lead you to going into an industry fund and perhaps not to other, other areas. So the point about what is the right advice, for a person at the right price becomes quite a vexed, you know, community question because you want people to get advice, but you want that advice to be impartial, you want it to be relatively affordable, and you want to make certain, I guess, that the advice is right. That's the key.
1: That's right. Now, we've had 20 years of legislation starting with the, you know, you know, the Financial Services Reform Act of 2001, and it's, in my opinion, we we haven't really gone very far. If you if you take a snapshot of the population today, the number of advisors is falling. Uh, many of the old ones are retiring. They won't do the, the new exams. So we have a significant shortage of practitioners. That shortage means that those that are around can charge um, high fees because there's not much competition. Um, The cost of advice is also rising because of legislation and it's much higher than most people can afford. So even even the industry folks giving retirement advice might charge three and a half, four thousand dollars. An independent person might charge six to eight. And yet um, our research shows that the majority of people don't want to pay more than about five hundred bucks. So you've got this huge discrepancy between what people think is the value of advice device and what it costs to deliver it.
0: And so that leads to more people trying to do it themselves. Now, OK, if there was sufficient information and insufficient sharks out there uh, in our financial services industry, that might very well help. But when I see, say, for example, even today, a whole bunch of uh, contracts for differences providers being prosecuted by uh, the, the corporate regulator ASIC, it makes me recognise that there are still people out there who are prepared to sell high-risk products to gullible people um, and, and really take their money. And I even think about risks going forward in, in particular in mortgage financing-type products that are going to offer very high yields. They're out there right now. And, and to me, the uninformed or the gullible might find themselves in those types of products, which could be car accidents if many of these products or properties are locked up in the future.
1: Yes, and it's fair to say the regulator often gets in at the tail end of the sales of these things, and so people do lose their money. Look, there are some things happening. We've obviously got my super in in the superannuation environment, which is a strong default. ASIC is about to bring out its distribution and design obligations, which are intended to make products fit for purpose. But um, a lot of this is just bureaucracy and... The crooks will just get around it. We, we think a better way of dealing with it is to look at the risks of taking advice. So if there's very little harm that can be done to you from taking a piece of advice, let's make it simple. Let's make it uh, cheap to deliver and let ASIC focus on the people delivering complicated advice where people can lose money if they if they go down the wrong path.
0: So what you're saying is that simple advice would be cheaper and obviously the hurdles to provide that advice would be easier uh, and you wouldn't need to do the complete assessment of an individual. What would be the sort of simple advice that might fall into that category, do you think?
1: Yes, well, let, let's take uh, people starting out in life and, and bear in mind that half half the population lives from payday to payday. They can't save. So if we could get people to do saving and budgeting, debt reduction, that's, uh, you could argue, fairly simple to do. Most accountants could do that in their sleep. But if a financial planner did it, they would have to go through a really complex statement of advice. uh, And it would cost quite a lot of money. Now, the irony is there's a bit of arbitrage because you've got money coaches outside the regulated environment giving that sort of service, and they seem to do quite well. The costs are quite moderate by comparison with financial advice. So, you know, maybe we should look and say, well, could we look at things like that? Mortgage broking on your own home, simple life insurance needs, Uh, The sort of intra-fund advice that superannuation funds have, you know, whether you should put more money in pre- or post-tax. A lot of that could be done relatively cheaply, backed by a good calculator um, and possibly through a call center. Now, what we're saying is people often want episodic advice or event-based advice. You know, they have a baby, they want some life insurance. So should we move away from this? long-term relationship with, with annual reviews of your finances, recognising that only 15% of the population are prepared to pay for that. So what do we do with the rest? What do we do with middle Australia?
0: And there's the issue, because superannuation is accumulating, parents do die and leave estates to families, divorces occur where people do need advice about the separation of assets and then ultimately what they do with those assets... So as you say, in many cases, the advice is not needed on an annual basis as you go through. It may be required a little bit more if you have more or indeed if you've got more complex affairs because you've got businesses and trusts involved. But for the vast majority of people who have a mortgage, a car, maybe a car loan, uh, an income that comes week to week, pay to pay, um, they're the people who need relatively less advice. Is This is where potentially robo-advice comes in where there's a whole bunch of new fintech startups that have got, you know, sort of smart calculators and that can make some assumptions. But really, even now, I just wonder whether legislation even gives them an ability to, to operate as freely as what uh, otherwise might be, might be necessary.
1: I don't think it does. I think I've heard of uh, people being shut down because they don't comply with ASIC. Now, a lot of it's got to do with interpretation, And, you know, the regulator will say, well, you know, if you follow the rules, it's simple. But why is it that um, some funds, particularly industry funds, will offer intra-fund advice and other funds will say their lawyers have told them that they can't do do it? So if you've got these big conglomerates not, not able to agree, then it's clear that the legislation is too complicated to follow.
0: So that being the case, if it's too complicated and too expensive, that leaves the individual to their own resources unless there is a better way, unless there is a different way of being to look at the whole issue of financial advice. Because what you would prefer not to do, I would imagine, as a community is to leave your people to their own resources, to simply say, this is all too hard. I'm worried about the advice I'm receiving. I'm worried about whether that's conflicted. I'm worried about the products that they're selling me. If there's all those worries going on, they're all barriers to stop people from taking any form of financial advice at all.
1: That's right. And after the Royal Commission and all the bad brand damage, you know, people are worried. Let's face it, if someone goes to get their car fixed or they go into a doctor, they're totally ignorant about the problem and how it's to be solved. But they trust that the person will fix it for them. It doesn't seem to apply to financial services because too many people have been ripped off and the media is full of those horror stories. Yeah. So one of the things we thought is, can you, we, we've, at the moment, we've got advice split into general advice, which doesn't take into account any of your personal circumstances and then personal advice. So you see a lot of general advice, which is almost not sensible. It's on adverts. It's on all sorts of things. It doesn't really add any value. Our view is that guidance, whether it's education, factual information, or what currently is general advice, should all just be called general information. I think we should take the word advice out, call it something uh, neutral, and then and then we could say that's really helping people on a pathway. It's not telling them what product they should be in. It's not telling them what they should necessarily do, but it's it's helping them guiding them to to the path they should then follow if you then split personal advice into simple and complex and i accept there'll probably be a lot of gray areas in the middle and you might need ASIC to set some rules but simple personal advice you know if saying to somebody you can pay up to twenty five thousand in super tax deductible this year you've paid 12 you can pay another 13 this financial year. What's the risk or the harm to that person if they follow that advice? All right, they they might have said, well, maybe I should have paid the mortgage off a bit sooner, but they next year they can do it differently. It's not as if they're locked into a long-term poor decision. Conversely, if you start leveraging an equity portfolio and you don't have enough to cover the margin loans, then the risk of harm is quite big. So you could see how you could Start categorizing types of advice against what the consumer might lose. So you think about someone like Mayfair who was in the papers lately, where they were offering six or seven percent so-called term deposits when the money was invested in buying things like Dunk Island. Now, anyone looking at that would have said, there's a risk of liquidity. You know they needed new investments to pay the interest.
0: And yet they were able to go out there and advertise themselves aggressively through their IPO wealth and all this type of thing that they had. I'll tell you a little story in the background of that. Um, As most people would know, I took a year off work this year. Um, This is kind of like my hobby, what I'm doing now. So that mob, uh, when there was some scandal brewing around them, came and approached me and offered me eye-watering amounts of money to effectively be their spokesperson for this year, which I promptly rejected, regardless of the eye-watering amounts of money. Because I still think it's, you know, really about doing the right thing by people. And you could see quite easily, would I have put my money into something such as that? The answer was no, because I had some knowledge about that. But as you point out, the ads are out there right now. Somebody's offering even what seems to be a, a moderate improvement on the returns as compared with what could otherwise be achieved. And people start to be attracted by that. But what you're saying is if people even get the right advice the impact on national savings is significant. So a 1% uplift in earnings simply because people make better decisions ends up being worth about $2 trillion in today's money over a 30-year period, which is quite astonishing simply by a 1% uplift in the earnings of people's savings over that period of time.
1: Well, and if you imagine... If you get rid of the under-insurance gap, when people die, leaving dependents without enough money behind, all these things uh, are beneficial. Now, I have to say that industry super has gone a long way to solving these problems. I mean, they provide superannuation and insurance for people, but they're not tailored to individuals' needs. So most people still want more, or would need more, to cover all of their requirements. Now where do they get the advice many people don't even know that their own superannuation fund will offer that service so i think we've got an education program here to help people and perhaps it starts quite early you know don't borrow money don't 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 put things on a credit card unless you pay it off at the end of each month
0: Well, there's small things, even like, you know, young people, students coming out of their um, tertiary education with a hex debt and a credit card bill almost inevitably, and so they're working for somebody else even before they start working for themselves, which is one aspect of financial advice that I think is really important, and you touched on education there, and that is who ultimately is making the final decision. I've always had the view that a financial advisor should be used as a tool. They provide you with the information to help you make a decision that you are responsible for yourself. Many people are recognise, however, go to the financial advisor as though they are the guru that have all the answers. And what we know is that financial advisors can make mistakes. They can make misjudgments. Um, but so long as they know the profile of that individual, they should at least be um, overcoming those mistakes with their own risk profiles, working out exactly what is the right or the wrong strategy for that individual. But I, I get a sense always, the more you can empower the individual to make the decision, the better the outcome, because they will also share the responsibility when mistakes are made.
1: That's true. That that happens a lot in things like the self-managed um, super funds, of course, where people are the trustees themselves and have to make the decisions. But I I think part of the problem is that the majority of people are financially illiterate and are are reluctant to make a decision, and they rely on someone else to make it for them. So, And that means that you've really got to go through the process and explain to them what they're doing, what the potential outcome is, and what the risks are. And a lot of people are risk-averse. So one of the ironies, as we've talked before about our group, uh, you know, our mandatory employer super system is that most people wouldn't invest the way the funds do if they knew the risks the funds were taking. But the risks are calculated and they've generated huge returns as a result. But if we if we left it to individuals, how much more would be plonked in cash and left there?
0: It's so true because people are risk averse and cash, of course, not only is a defensive asset, but one that can make you in real terms go backwards over a long period of time. Just a final one for you, and that is that when it comes to financial advice, we obviously want people to do better with their money, but the residue of the old way of financial advisors being paid, and that was through commissions from upfront fees and through trailing commissions, has meant that really Australians pay some of the highest prices for financial products in the world. Now, I'm thinking about even our superannuation products Uh, The management expense ratios, the annual expenses are higher in percentage terms of what people pay in the United States or in Europe. Uh, The same thing happens with uh, personal products as well. So the question of whether some of your suggestions can drive down the price of financial products and superannuation, which would go part of the way to achieving that 1% per year better return for individuals, that clearly must be a part of the thinking of getting people into cost-efficient advice to give them better returns and hopefully cheaper products in the long term.
1: That's right. And and really, a financial advisor should be dealing with people with complicated situations, right? As you said earlier, someone with a family trust, their own business, they've got needs that are much broader than the person in the street. So if we've got financially illiterate population, we've got to give them some guidance, put them into products that are broadly going to be good for them. So a lot of it's to do with building confidence, building reputation of the industry, and making people think that what they're getting is good value for money. And if we don't change the current system, I think we're just going to be in the same boat in five years time.
0: So Michael, final question for you. And that is, if you were out today seeking financial advice, um, what would be the ideas that you would have about seeking that financial advisor that you could share with the audience here, given the report that you have just written?
1: Well, the first thing is, uh, if you don't know anyone at all, then I think you'd ring up the FPA or the AFA where, where the register of advisors is kept and if you said uh, i'm looking for an advisor that charges me a fee that isn't a percentage of assets of of my portfolio then they'll give you a list of those people and the reality is you can meet them go through what they say and if you can understand what they're telling you then you've probably got a good fit if you walk out of the meeting and think i've got this wad of paperwork and i really didn't understand a thing he said that's probably a good sign that you should move to plan B.
0: And as I said at the very beginning of this podcast, my tip has always been I would prefer to find, if I can, an honest financial advisor than a good one. I think that's sometimes a bit of a key in (laughs) life as well. Michael Rice, as I say, one of Australia's leading independent actuaries with the Research House, Rice Warner, uh, with that new paper commissioned by the Financial Services Council that does represent um, the big investment funds and also superannuation funds and insurance companies as well. Michael, always great to have you in the podcast. Many thanks for your time. Thank you, Ross. So that's it for the Money Minutes for today. Just a quick one as I go today. S&P Global Ratings has today come out with an update on Australia's credit rating. Now, it does reaffirm Australia's AAA credit rating, the very highest credit rating of it all. But its outlook continues to be negative. And it's interesting to note the reason why. The reason is basically because Australia, it says, faces fiscal and economic risks tilted to the downside. What they're saying is that they could lower their ratings within the next two years if the COVID outbreak causes economic and fiscal damage that's more prolonged than what we currently expect. In this scenario, government revenue and budget balances could underperform our forecast naturally. Effectively, what they're saying is that the Reserve Bank doesn't have terribly much you know, headroom because interest rates are so close to zero to give much support. The government even know there is a deficit of at about 14% of the GDP, the gross domestic product, in next calendar year. It's one of these situations where they're saying that they believe Australia ultimately and the stimulus packages will aid Australia's recovery. But what they're saying is that the deficits will persist and the debt levels will be elevated for years to come. So anyway, that is it for the Money Minutes for today. Thank you so much for your company. I really appreciate it. You can, of course, give us your feedback via your podcast app on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon as well. This has been a Talent Court production. I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes.